Chapter 15. It's unbelievable how much junk one old man can accumulate. We discovered whole rooms we did not even know existed because the door was covered with ceiling high to piles of debris. However, however are we going to get this stuff out of here? Gwen asked one morning when she came down to look over the property with me. And then she answered her own question. Why don't you get some of the pastors to get up a teenager's work party? And that's just what we did. One overcast Saturday afternoon, toward the end of January, three cars pulled up and out, swarmed 15 young boys and girls, jabbering and yelling and proclaiming that they'd make short shrift of any junk we could show them. But this was while they were looking at their assignment from the outside. When they went in and were taken from attic to basement, I could watch the enthusiasm drain out of them. Each step they had to lift a foot high to make headway. They slithered and slid over the piles of newspaper and glass until they were panting, just trying to grasp the size of the task. But those kids did a wonderful job. They started at the front of the building and cleared a path for themselves. And room by room, floor by floor, they kept steadily at it until they had carried every bit of that junk out into the backyard. Here, Paul Delena took over. He had alerted the sanitation department of the job ahead of them. I think there will be at least four truckloads of trash to haul off, he said. Later, Paul told me of a little drama with the foreman of the crew that, to him, said more about the spirit of our project than any previous sign. The sanitation department refused its tip. Paul said the trucks arrived at 416 Clinton on schedule, but that the men did not start to work. The junk piled higher and higher on the sidewalk and street, and the sanitation crew just stood around. When Paul saw what was happening, he called on right away. All right, he said, how much do you want? Thirty dollars, came the quick answer. Paul shrugged his shoulders as one used to the ways of New York and acceded. Rather than hold the project up, he would pay the necessary gratuity himself when the job was done. Hours later, the last of the trucks was filled. Six garbage trucks had rumbled down the street, groaning under their burden. The foreman came and asked Paul if everything was all right. Perfect, Paul said. You did a good job. I guess you want your money now. He started to reach for his wallet. What money, said the foreman, and then he laughed, but it was a forced laugh. Paul said, the kind that tried to cover up emotion. Look, mister, those kids of yours told me what you're doing here. I've got a teenager of my own. Do you think we'd take money for helping you out? And with that, he got into his truck, revved it up, and stormed away with a show of one who was really pretty tough. At the end of three weeks, we were finally ready to begin work on the house itself. Painters from various churches arrived, and room by room, we covered up the artwork with which students from the nearby college had decorated the walls. Then plumbers came. They had to tear the walls apart as new frozen and burst pipes were discovered. All this cost money, which I had to raise by taking time out for flights all over the country to make appeals. One real blow came when the city announced that before we could get a certificate of occupancy, a complete sprinkler system had to be installed in the building. The cost? $5,000. Off I flew again, taking time out from the work I really wanted to do just to raise money. Even so, I could never have done all the fundraising by myself. Everyone on the board helped in his own way. One minister, for instance, Grady Finnan, traveled around the country to present our needs. Another member of the board was Martin Carl a very successful professional singer who used to be with the Mariners Quartet on the Alf Arthur Godfrey show. You can imagine the drop in income Marty took when he came to work for us as a singing ambassador. Marty took his challenge literally across the country, telling about the center that was starting in New York. Finally, the last painter and the last plumber left the center, and we settled back to look at what had happened before our eyes. With less than $100 in the bank, God had raised up this home, but now we had to put it to use. We wanted to fill it with his children, but before we could do that, we had to give his children a place to sit down. We had a fine building, but there was nothing in it. It was at this stage of our experience that I realized how much God wanted all sorts of people to be a part of our work. We started pretty much as an Assemblies of God program, and before we knew it, 
We had an Episcopalian and a Presbyterian and a Baptist and a Dutch Reformed committee member. And we had attracted the interest of some truly influential businessmen. One, for instance, was Mr. Walter Harving, president of Bonwit Teller and also of Tiffany's in New York. Mr. and Mrs. Harving took a personal hand in introducing us to people we would never have met without their help. One afternoon, Mrs. Harving held a lunch at the exclusive River Club to which she invited just a few people who should know about you. Fifty people showed up. A converted drug addict stood up and told very simply how his life had been changed. There was not a person in that dining room who was not deeply stirred. Walter Hoving became the president of our board of advisors. Since you're one of us now, Mr. Hoving, Paul said, we would like to return the courtesy of your generous meal at the River Club. Do you like lasagna? It was Mrs. Hoving who answered. She loved lasagna, but it was so hard she said to get the real thing, which is how it happened, that the Hovings were invited to the home of the Delanas for a mouth-watering meal of home-baked Italian specialties. As we all sat around Mrs. Delana's table, I couldn't help but say a private prayer of thanks that God was bringing people from so many different backgrounds into this work. Another business friend of the Teen Challenge Center was Mr. Grant Simmons, Jr., president of the Simmons Bed Company. We were introduced to Mr. Simmons through the Hovings, and we went to him for a specific request. We needed 20 beds. For an hour, we sat in Mr. Simmons' Park Office Avenues, Park Avenue offices, telling him about our hopes and about the strange way God was working in the city. Mr. Simmons was generous, not only with his time, but with his substance. From that day on, many a boy who was used to sleeping on subway benches has slept at the center on Simmons' beds and mattresses. To me, one of the real functions of our ministry is getting people like Walt Hoving, Grant Simmons, and Clem Stone interested in the work of Pentecostals. I would often hear remarks like, I'll have to admit, said one of our Episcopalian board members who had been to a service at our chapel, that I was a little shocked when I first heard your young people praising the Lord and watched them raise their hands as they prayed. But I'll also have to admit that there was something very real going on in our hearts. We Episcopalians talk about the real presence of Christ. He's here in this home. This was the highest compliment our work has ever received. It is this presence that makes the healing work of the Dean Challenge Center possible. That sense of presence has grown steadily, but its greatest growth took place when we began to put our dreams into action. We plan to use the home in this way. Eventually, we would have 20 workers at the center. Each morning, these young men and women would rise, have breakfast, and then spend the morning in prayer and study. This would be an essential part of our work. I had long ago discovered that too much running around without a base of quiet meditation produces little of value. After lunch, our street day would begin. Teams of two or three workers would start working over a prescribed route, keeping an eye out for signs of trouble. They would be trained to spot the symptoms of narcotics addiction. They would be on the lookout for the teenage alcoholic or for the girl prostitute. They would talk to gang members, especially the members of fighting gangs. And they would go not with an eye to gaining converts, but with an eye to meeting needs. The conversions would take care of themselves. If we really met a human need, the world would beat a path to our door. Most of the teenagers we contacted in this way would never live at the center. We would put them in touch with a minister near their home and work through him. We would keep careful records and follow up regularly until it was clear these youngsters could stand on their own. But some boys and girls would be sick enough to need special attention. They would be brought to the center, the boys to live in the top floor dormitory with the men workers on our staff, the girls to live on the second floor with the women and with the married members of our staff. We expected to be working almost exclusively with boys, but it... If a girl was in need, we would not turn her away. The key to this whole plan lay with the workers. There was I going to find, where was I going to find 20 bright and aggressive yet empathetic and healthy young men and women who would work for $10 a week, all the budget would allow. For this munificent sum, they would literally risk their lives. Even as I began to face the problem of finding my staff, one of our boys was knifed on the street. His name was Carlos. 
Carlos had been a member of one of the worst fighting gangs in New York, the Suicides. After his life had been changed, Carlos wanted to go back to his gang and tell them what had happened to him. One day he took it upon himself to do just that. As soon as he came upon members of his old gang, Carlos was surrounded. I hear you got religion, said the leader of the Suicides. That's right, said Carlos. And I, I hear you won't fight no more. That's right, said Carlos. The boy pulled out his shim. You'll fight if I stab you, he said. Years of training had taught Carlos that this challenge was real. He jumped sideways and ripped off an automobile, radio antenna which makes a vicious improvised weapon. Then abruptly, Carlos changed his mind. He broke the antenna across his knee and threw it on the ground. No, I'm not going to fight, he said. And with that, the leader of the suicide stabbed Carlos. He rammed his shim hilt deep into Carlos's ribs. The blood gushed from the wound as Carlos slumped to the sidewalk. The suicides ran away, leaving Carlos crying for help. By the time the boy reached Cumberland Hospital, it was touch and go whether he would live. When he was finally released, it was with the doctor's friendly warning not to preach to boys who carried knives. Carlos paid no attention to him, but went back immediately to his street preaching. Perhaps because of this incident, he became one of our most effective workers. But who was going to run this kind of risk? How many boys like Carlos were there? As if in answer to this question, one morning shortly after we had brought the building into more or less usable condition, I received a wire from Central Bible College in Springfield, Missouri, asking me to go there for a lecture. I accepted the invitation, flew out, and presented the challenge of our streets to the student body. It was a wonderful service in which everyone felt the same gentle moving of the Holy Spirit. Afterward, the president of the school stood up and made a rather amazing statement, saying that he thought our work was the closest thing he had seen to the challenge found in apostolic times. He offered financial help to any needy student who wanted to go to New York to work with us on the streets. Those who were interested were to meet me in the school library. When I got to the library a few minutes later, 70 young people were standing in line. Out of these 70, I knew we could use only 20 workers, so I really went to work painting a dark picture. I promised them no money. They would even have to pay their own way to New York. All we could give them was a place to stay and food to eat. And I stressed that they were going to risk their lives. I told them about Carlos and two other boys who were beaten on the streets. Then I told them there would be lots of scullery work involved, doing dishes and scrubbing floors and getting the home ready. To my surprise, we eliminated only about 20. So I had to leave the choice to the faculty at the school. By the time I left Springfield, we had chosen 16 young men and women to come to New York as workers. Four more were chosen from Lee College in Tennessee. One by one, a few weeks later, they began to arrive. They came carrying their suitcases and craning their necks. They were all a little frightened, I think, at the strange new sights of New York, and when I took them upstairs to their stark, barrack-like dormitories, I knew they were wondering what they had gotten into. Here are extracts from a letter written by one of our girls shortly after she arrived. My dearest family, greetings from New York City. I arrived in the great city at 8.15 p.m. last night. The place was full of people, but God helped me. T.A.E. wasn't listed in the phone book because it's new, but I found out the number and someone came with a card. All my friends came right after me. I had no trouble on the way. None of my buses were late. From Chicago to New York, we stopped for three meals and two stops, so it was comfortable. My job and plans here are as follows. Number one, personal evangelism among girls. Monday, free to do as I wish. Tuesday, street evangelism and street services. Wednesday, hospital visitations to teenage girls. Thursday, Jail visits to girls, Friday. Street evangelism and street services, Saturday. Work with denominational churches, Sunday. Work with Pentecostal churches. Number two. In charge of girls as dorm counselor. See that the rooms are clean and homework done, etc. Three. In charge as music director. We are praying for a person to pioneer the girls' evangelism with me. There were three murders in Joe's section this week. 
I must go help cook supper. Don't forget to go to church. I love you. I'll never forget the evening when I was finally able to say to Gwyn, Well, honey, we're open for business. We were standing in the little chapel of the center. This room had at one time been the formal drawing room of the old house, and there was a large fireplace against one wall. A richly carved mantle stuck out into the room, and as I talked to Gwyn, I leaned up against this mantle. I reminded her of the evening just as a year and a half earlier, when I'd stood in the moonlit churchyard in Phillipsburg, watching the wheat wave in the breeze. Now the Lord had brought us to the harvest field. He had given us the tools, twenty fine workers, and a belief in the power of the Holy Spirit to change lives. Darling, said Gwyn, look. I stood forward and tried to make out what she was pointing to on the mantle, and then I saw, too, there, beautifully carved into the fireplace in our chapel, was the bass relief of a sheaf of wheat brought in, tied, and harvested.